I miss a green, for example, I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today's episode is with Andrew Putnam. Andrew plays on the PGA Tour. He has been out there for a few years now, uh, has really established himself as a good PGA Tour player. Uh, he starred at Pepperdine University and, uh, you know, a guy that's not really out there that much. Like, he, he's not on social media much he is uh he's an interesting dude because he's do does things a little bit differently no swing coach uh, a little bit different approach to the game a little bit different style to the way he plays versus the rest of the tour really so i was super excited to talk to andrew um and uh we did it in person when i was down at riv last week and uh i think this was a really good conversation uh, something I wanted to talk about at the top here before we get to the Andrew interview was uh, Riviera in general. Um, I went down, I think this was the third year that I've gone down to Riviera uh, for the tournament. And I think as the stature of the event, the fields continue to get better and better. And obviously with the new designated events, the field was outstanding this uh, last week at Riviera. And you know, the course has, uh, it really shines, even with how far these guys are hitting the golf ball and, and rendering a lot of the shots at Riviera less consequential than they used to be because, you know, these guys are hitting nine irons, wedges, and such into long par fours. But the course continues to shine. And, and I think, like, what everybody is talking about is, like, how do we get more Rivieras on the schedule? And that's the tough thing. I think everybody looks at this event and it's been such a success and it's how do we replicate this? And I don't know if it's actually possible. You know, the reality of today's day and age is that clubs get tired of hosting PGA Tour event after a few years. Um, you know, it used to be a huge badge of honor. You used to see longtime hosts. You think about Westchester. You think about the Michigan uh, Warwick Hills course. You think about Cog Hill in Chicago. We used to have these longtime hosts, uh, Butler National before Cog Hill, and obviously that went away because of uh, the lack of women members. But we have these. Lo- we used to have these longtime club hosts. And really, that's changed over, I'd say, the last 20 years or so. And it's become harder and harder to find clubs that want to host tournament golf year in and year out. At Riviera, it's a little bit different. It's not a membership club. So in terms of, you know, one of the big differences is it's a single owner and the single owner wants to host it. So that's what they do. They host the tournament. The history is really shown well through the clubhouse like i mean they have a whole wall of champions that shows every single year la open winners i i thought that was kind of cool a nice ode but the members don't have a say and they can't complain about losing their course for 10 or 11 days every single year that's not a problem at riviera but that becomes a problem at almost every other club in america that wants that hosts year in year out the other thing that's kind of irreplicable about Riviera is its location. 
It's right in the heart. Like it's just on the border of Brentwood, uh, Santa Monica and Pacific Palisades. It's a great place. You know, it's, it's players are genuinely excited about Riviera, not just because of the golf course, but because of where it is, the town getting to spend a week in Santa Monica. They go out, they eat in one of the best food areas of the world. So it's a unique experience on tour, not only for the fans, but also for the players. You see a lot of the players' wives come to this event because it's such a delightful place to be. So that's something to keep in mind with tour events is that, you know, I think that the the PGA Tour can be a grind for players. Week in, week out, you go to these different areas and, you know, whether it be Palm Springs or Harbor Town, it's like these vacation places where, you know, it's not a, a place like LA where you're in the city and you have lots of things you can go do. You can go see sporting events and different things. And that's something that I I kind of really thought of as a missed opportunity for for the PGA Tour is, you know, LA has a lot of great things to do, but it also has a lot of great golf courses and Riviera happens to be the one that hosts all the time and that's awesome. But, you know, where the PGA Tour is missing and how do you create something you're never going to create Riviera uh, multiple times across, you know, the course of a calendar year. But how do you get better golf courses more consistently? And the key to that is going to great markets, great golf markets, and having mainstay events. But you have to start to create these rotations because, again, the memberships, the golf courses, they get tired of hosting year in year out. It's like, oh, we're giving up ten days at one of the uh, the very best times of the year in our golf window is only six months. So you have to ration the amount of t- times you're going back to these. So easy ways for the tour schedule to get better, to, to be a better product because venues matter. Going to good golf courses matter. These guys, it, it, it's just a better test of golf as we saw with Rom and Homa battling down the stretch. It was awesome to see a golf course that provided some stuff they had to think about getting in bad places around the greens uh, and different things. So with that in mind, I kind of started to think about what could these, what could the tour do that, you know, would start to replicate this at more designated events. Number one, you got to have, you got to go to a few cities and right off the top of the list, New York area, the New York market, the Met golf section, that's the most golf rich area in the country. And the fact that there's not a regular event there is absolutely crazy. Not to mention all the businesses on there. I'm sure there's a sponsor on the PGA Tour that would love to host an annual New York golf event, New York, New Jersey. So my just first stab at creating a little rotation of that, go Bethpage, Ridgewood, and Westchester. So with Bethpage, you're hitting Long Island. It's easy to get to from the city. And obviously, it's a major championship host golf course. Ridgewood is outstanding. That was one of the golf courses that I was, you know, most, I guess, surprised. I knew it was a good golf course, but I was so pleasantly surprised after playing there. I thought it was so much fun. It stood up really well at the USAM last year. And I think it stood up well at the uh, PGA Tour playoff event it hosted a few years back. I think Bryson won that one. But it wasn't crazy. Even though it was wet, the scoring wasn't crazy. And it's a really fun 
golf course, good test. And then the final one, hit a different part of the city, go up to Westchester. Obviously, longtime host years ago, go play that golf course. And you've got a nice little three rotation. So you're not going back to Ridgewood and asking him to host every single year. You're asking him to host every three years. Maybe you find a fourth course to put in there. I'm sure people have some ideas. Uh, if you have ideas, feel free to reach out to me. I'd love to hear your New York rotation. Then you go to Chicago. You need to have an annual event in Chicago if you're interested in in upping the venue quality because there aren't many cities uh, that can host an annual event at great golf courses. With Chicago, you obviously have Olympia Fields. We'll see it this year in the, the BMW. We saw it a couple of years ago during the COVID BMW. Have a great finish with DJ and uh, John Rahm. That's a golf course that can stand up to players and provides a pretty interesting test. Uh, Medina. Uh, number three is undergoing a renovation this year. So that will be a new look Medina. And, uh, you know, in terms of venue, just outside of just golf course, I'm, I'm pretty bullish on the golf course being very good when it's renovated because it's on an outstanding piece of ground. But from a venue standpoint, there are few courses in the world that are better suited to host big major golf tournaments than Medina. There's so much space and uh, it's an awesome club. And then finally, uh, Conway Farms. Now, is Conway Farms the most stout test? No, but it's in a different part of the city, and it's just been renovated by uh, Jackson and Khan. It's got a much, I think they've greatly improved their aesthetic. They've greatly improved some holes that uh, have a lot more strategy than they used to now. I think that golf course is one that's gotten a lot better thanks to the renovation from Jackson and Khan, and that provides you a nice Chicago rotation. Further on, another city, Philadelphia. How good would it be if we saw a rotation of Philly Cricket Club, Aronimink, and Wilmington? Philly Cricket Club's obviously hosted a senior PGA. That would be an awesome, awesome PGA Tour course. I have no clue if they would be open to hosting it, but that would be an amazing place to have an event every couple years. Aronimink, same same bucket. That was a great BMW, even through the soaked rain. And obviously, they're hosting a PGA in coming years. And I thought Wilmington was a fine PGA Tour course. Is it a great, great golf course? No, but I think it's an above average PGA Tour course and serves another area. But like Philly, these great golf cities you have to go to. I think the key here is rotation. You can't go back every single year to these places. They get tired. They get stale. The events get stale. So rotations. What about regional rotations? Wisconsin is now out of major championship golf. U.S. Opens aren't going to go back to Aaron Hills, it doesn't seem like. And PGAs can't go. You know, men's major golf is is not going to go there. So what about a regional Wisconsin, Indiana, Michigan rotation? So let's take the Rocket Mortgage and rotate it around. Or, you know, maybe it's a different event. But we got Whistling Straits, Aaron Hills, Crooked Stick, and Detroit Golf Club. It hits different parts of the country that are going to be so excited to come out and show up. And there are good golf courses to go to. So, you know, you're you're flying in, parachuting in. The, the support from local community is going to be huge to the years you host in these areas. And you're also achieving something important, going to good golf courses. Another one, a little bit off the wall that I threw together here, Denver, Washington, Oregon, and Utah. Here's the rotation. Cherry Hills, Chambers Bay, Bandon Dunes, 
and then Sand Hollow down in St. George, which can obviously pull from Salt Lake City as well as Las Vegas. I think that would be a really great way to hit up some areas of the country that aren't used to golf. That's just some ideas for for the America uh, American aspect of it. Obviously, then you could take some of these designated events internationally. The UK and Australia would be amazing. The hard thing with those is just going to be fitting them into the PGA Tour schedule with travel. Like, obviously, these guys just don't want to go to Australia because of how long it takes. I would love to see them play in Australia in the winter sometime. Maybe it's a kickoff. Like, an Australian event would be great before you go to Kapalua. So you're kind of buffering that travel back with, hey, we're going to do Australia, then we're going to do Kapalua. But those are just a few ideas, and uh, I'll I'll let us get to Andrew Putnam, but I'd love to see one of the big focuses with this designated event push be venues while they're reworking the schedule in the coming year, really. I mean, this is the time. I think they've got a bunch of meetings in the coming weeks that are going to be deciding how this tour looks in the next year, and I'd love to see a little bit of a focus on designated events venues as well as how they make up the field so without further ado here is andrew putnam thank you for listening to the podcast and uh thanks to andrew for coming on i gotta ask you this question it's a question that i think about a lot is is reno would you consider it as a past champion at reno would you consider it part of the pacific northwest i would not no that's uh I've never thought of it, Pacific Northwest. I'm thinking more Oregon, Washington, Idaho. But I haven't heard the case I haven't heard the case for why Reno would be, so I was I was at a bookstore in my town. I'm in Northern California, technically. It, you know, really kind of central if you think about it, dividing the state. Yeah. And I saw a book about mushrooms of the Pacific Northwest right in the window. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Well, am I in the Northwest Pacific Northwest? But my thought is wherever there are redwood trees, like redwood forests, that, I kind of consider Pacific that constitutes Northwest. it. Yeah. I mean, if that's your definition, then I guess it would be. It's interesting it in that you include Idaho. Yeah. I've just always thought of Idaho. Just it's, it's cold and gloomy, kind of like Washington. So I don't know. Mm-hmm. We used to, I mean, there's a lot of like junior tournaments that would cross over into Idaho. So it just feels kind of one, one area. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, so you're down in Phoenix in the winter full time, really? Well, uh, we used to. We actually sold our house. Oh, really? So Where now we're we're actually full time in in uh, University Place, right by Chambers Bay. Wow! So you're one so, of the. That's amazing. Yeah, I'm. Yeah, I'm there right now because our kids and all that. But we we do miss Scottsdale uh-huh. in the winter times, and we still spend quite a bit of time there. So you so you're one of the few PGA Tour players that's not like Texas. Sea Island, mm-hmm. Florida, or Arizona. Yeah. Me and I guess Kyle Stanley are the only ones up there right now. But How do you think uh, growing up in Washington kind of shaped you as a golfer? You know, I think there's a lot of good toward it. You know, they have, I mean, Washington Zone is one of the strongest, like, junior golf, um, has one of the strongest, I guess, statewide junior golf programs, WJGA. Um, they've, they've existed for a long time and Competition is uh, sneaky good up there. We've had quite a few tour players come out of there, especially recently, compared to how many golfers there are, you know. And so, uh, but in terms of like, man, in high school, I had to play through everything. Like, just 
I just remember like the cups being full of water and still having to play and like, just the nastiest weather you could ever imagine. Um, and so I think it looking back on it, like that was just all I ever knew. So I just did it and had fun with it. But I think obviously it translates into having a little more grit on the PGA Tour. You know, a lot of a lot of kids now like went to these IMG academies in Florida or California and, and just played in perfect weather. So they're, they're not as prepared for, for bad weather as I am. I have a buddy who's on the Corn Ferry Tour. I'm from Chicago. And uh, he kind of, he turned pro and then he was down in Florida. And then he eventually made the decision to move back to Chicago yeah. in the, and spend winter in Chicago. And he kind of rationalized it as like, I struggled with golf all the time and I needed a break. Is that, did you, you know, is that something that part of, you know, growing up in Washington that became part of your golf, like having a weather induced break? Yeah, I mean, I, I played basketball all the way through high school, and you kind of get forced time off because the weather's just not fun to play in, you know. So, <laughs> I think that that was good for me, like playing a team sport. And I think for juniors now, that's even more important because it's so hyper focused on like you got to get good, quick, and fast. And like you know, so many guys are burning out now. So I think having like a forced break is great. And now translating to like where I am now, it's like man, when I was living in Phoenix. Like you never question what the weather is going to be like when you woke up, like it's sunny every day. Right. And so there's like, if you want to take a few days off, you almost felt guilty because like the weather's so good that it's like, why, why wouldn't I go practice, you know? But then now living up in Washington, it's like, man, I'm not going to practice because it's 40 and raining. Like I just, I'm not doing it. <laughs> so I don't feel bad. So it actually, it does. There's a part, you know, there's part of it that it helps with rest because you're, you're forced to take a little time off on off weeks. Yeah, I was reading, uh, I found this Pepperdine article about you, um, and, and there's a quote, when you spend so much time playing a sport, your identity and worth as a human becomes tied to how you perform, but my identity is not in what I do or what I play, and that's a good lesson that I'm glad I learned early on. When is that just from having that time off that you, you kind of came to that? Uh, no, that's just trial and error, I think. <laughs> just as I mean, every golfer, I feel like, that's the big struggle is like, man, our identity is in, I mean, any, I think in anything obviously can wrap your identity in your job and, but more so in like competitive sports, it's just like a, that's just par for the course. Like you spend so much time on it. It's extremely important. And yeah, when you, when, I mean, there's moments when all, you know, any tour golfer has been extremely depressed with bad results. And so you learn like, Hey man, I'm, I'm identifying my worth as a human because I play playing bad. Right. And it doesn't feel good. And so that's something you got to learn and get through. And I kind of, you know, obviously have a lot of good people around me to keep me on track. And my faith growing up is, is a big part of that. But that's a huge lesson that you got to learn as a, as a, you know, high level golfer. I mean, and it's never, it's never like I'm, I'm free of that. Like it just always comes back. So, yeah, I mean, that's, I think it's got to be part of it because of the individual aspect of it, right? Versus you know, growing up playing basketball, like when the team's playing bad, it's a joint thing and you're in it together almost. Yeah. But with golf, is, is does it just make it so difficult because it's an individual thing? Yeah. And it just it solely re relies on you. And it's like, you can't blame anyone else. It's like, yep, I'm terrible right now. <laughs> I don't know what to say. I mean, and golf is just like a fickle sport where like, man, you can feel like you're like when it's going well, you feel like it's the easiest game in the world. But then when it's going bad, you're like, I, I honestly have no idea how I'm ever going to like play good again. <laughs> There's certain, it's just like the highs and lows are insane. What would you say has been the most frustrating 
point of your career? Like, was it, is there a period where you think back to like a specific run of events where it was like, God, I, you know, I don't know why I'm doing this. I mean, yeah, like I've had, I've had multiple <laughs> episodes of that. I mean, in college, I got the driver yips. I was like going to be probably second team All-American Pepperdine. I had like eight top tens and then my driver broke and then all this stuff happened and I shot a million. I went to play at Carson Creek in Oklahoma and it's like the worst course ever to have driver problems. I don't know if you've been yeah. there. It's a nightmare. But I literally, almost. I mean, I barely was breaking 90 and I'm like, dude, I'm a good player. Like I'm second team All-American. I mean, another guy on my team, the final round, I was like 15 over. Another guy in my group or another teammate came up I was like on the uh, 16th green. I saw him coming, riding in a rules officials cart, coming up. And I'm like, Chad, what are you? What's going on? Why are you on a rules officials cart? And he's like, Bro, I lost all my golf balls. I had to withdraw. And I'm sitting there with the driver yips, having to finish this college tournament. That was probably the lowest point of my golf career. I remember my parents being out there watching me, and I was, <laughs> I was legit in tears, saying, Dad, I need to quit. Like this is not like you know when you got left and right going, you can't find the map. It was a nightmare. So that that took me like six months to work through. That was terrible. I had a buddy who was a really good, like a really good amateur player, played in college, and uh, like was like a very good driver of the golf ball. That got it. The only way he could not get away from the driver yips was hitting a ball off the deck, off the tee. Okay. So you just throw the ball down and you hit it off the ground. Like, how did you work through that? Because we've obviously seen we. I think it's like an under talked about thing that happens to very elite golfers is the driver like the you know you kind of lose it and it starts going both ways and yeah as soon as you don't have confidence in that club it, it can be scary yeah i mean i i just grinded through it honestly i just my natural reaction was to just stop playing <laughs> and just be like okay i'm gonna take time off but i knew that it wouldn't the problems wouldn't go away you know so it's one of those things where like if you're facing something like that you just got to go through it and i just kept playing and literally shooting in the 80s like non-stop non-stop just beating myself down to like ground zero and then once you hit the bottom then that's when you can kind of like work your way out you know it just it sucked <laughs> for six seven months i don't know how long it took but then like that next year i remember just having a couple good things happen like qualified for the u.s open as an amateur that next year and there's just you know things that like okay i'm back and got my confidence back but yeah i mean that was bad i, I kind of had a similar thing happen on my my rookie year as a pga player I just was kind of just had no idea where my game was at. And I remember I had a good fall. I was like probably top 10 on the Corn Ferry kind of list. I got into this Riv, Riv event. Um, and then I just kind of, I don't know, rookie year on the PGA Tour is tough. Like you, things can get out of control fast. It can kind of spiral and you can just get into like a bad, bad rhythm where you're just trying to play catch up and you're changing things. Anyways, I was in one of those death spirals. And I remember Travelers Championship playing like this pro-am. Um, an offsite pro am, and it was at like this course that was pretty wide open. And I remember playing the first, the front nine, and and uh, I hit probably I I might have lost like four or five balls off the tee. And I remember these guys in my pro am like looking at me and like, hey, so are you playing in this tournament this week, the tour event? Are you just are you just here like filling in for the? And I'm like, oh no, like this is not a good sign. If these guys don't even think I'm like, you know, I remember like. I ended up withdrawing from that tournament because I was like having just like crazy anxiety of like, I, I couldn't play golf. Like, I, I don't know. I just, I couldn't like, dude, I don't know what was going on. And I withdrew and it was like very humbling. Like I remember like calling some of my coaches and 
And I was like, man, I was like in tears in the airport, just like, dude, I can't do it. And uh, I think that was a big breakthrough for me because I, I realized like I could I could say no to golf. It's hard to like as a rookie, you feel like you got to keep playing. And I'm like, no, like I can take two weeks off and I, I can put the pause button on and like I don't have to keep going down this road where golf is everything. And I think I kind of woke up there and that obviously didn't finish off my season great, but I think that was a big like moment for me especially as a young professional, like going through that early on. I feel like the same thing happens with the Corn Ferry Tour where you have this race to points and it's like, you know, as a rookie, it's, you don't get, you, you start where you start, right? You don't get a set your, so if you're in, you feel like you have to play yeah. just like on the Corn Ferry where like, you know, you watch these guys, they'll play 12 weeks in a row and it's oh, like, yeah. no, that's like not a good thing to do. It's not healthy <laughs> yeah, like, for any aspect of you. <laughs> But it's like that. It's like a fear of missing out on points. It's like, well, I'm like, I'm 45th right now, and if I don't play, I'm guaranteed to drop down to 50. And oh yeah, like that. That's the tricky thing. How hard was it? Also, you know, like you hear people talk about learning courses, and now that you're a veteran on the PGA Tour, what would you place in terms of a like kind of like? A, does it really save you shots? week in week out or can some places get harder the more you play it i absolutely think like the more you play something doesn't mean you're gonna play it better there's certain courses that that might work on but like for example yesterday la was my first time playing i was like five under through nine holes you know i'm not saying that that's a good strategy but i don't know there's something to like simplifying like golf right like you can as a rookie that's one thing that was really hard is like man i, I played the monday pro-am i played tuesday played nine holes and wednesday i was practicing it's like by third, when Thursday rolls around, you're just exhausted and you're like, man, I learned the course, but then I'm exhausted and I don't know. So there's a fine line, I think, for that. And now, like, I, I feel like, man, I can just show up on like a Tuesday, maybe play nine Tuesday, nine Wednesday, and I'm good to go. Because obviously, I've played all the courses a lot and know them. So that helps. But yeah, there's something, there's like a definitely a balance. I, I've always thought like some places, it, I think it more fits like certain holes. Like, Certain holes get harder the more you play them because like you have like the skeletons in your brain and like you, you, you or you know, I really need to avoid that spot. Yeah. And it's like, you know, sometimes it's just like, why don't I just hit a good shot and hit the fairway? You know, for sure. Yeah, I know. I mean, like playing yesterday, LA, when I remember hitting a driver off the deck on this par five, like, I don't know, 14 or something. And, and I hit a good shot. And then, then the, my, the Pepperdine coach was like, yeah, you know, if you hit it like 20 yards right, it just goes into out of bounds. I'm like, well, I'm glad I didn't know that. Like. I wouldn't have hit a driver off the deck, but you know, it seemed like an easy shot to me at the point at the moment. So I've honestly, it's weird. I've had some of my best tournaments when I've like been hurt or had some freak thing where I literally could only play nine hole practice rounds and I've like played my best and I've talked to other pros and similar stories. So I think practice rounds are overrated. I was watching the, um, the Netflix show and you know, Obviously, mixed mixed reviews for it, but one of the things I I seem to glean, and I think what you just hit on is like the the idea of expectations with you guys, and how like being able to keep expectations lower is such an advantage, no matter like how you compartmentalize it, yeah. and you know, and what you said, like when you've got something going on, and you almost like you know you can only play a little bit, maybe you're injured or whatever, the, uh, then your expectations change, right? Oh, that's huge. Yeah, expectations are huge. It's just like it, it frames the week like totally different. If your expectations are higher, you're like wanting to play well. 
if you're in like a hometown or it's it changes the whole week it's it's yeah it's key but yeah when people play less practice rounds i feel like you have less expectations like when you think like hey i got i've been here for three day four days i got this course totally figured out like your expectations are gonna be higher they're like hey i should play well once you have that thought it's you're just that's not good yeah you you played with the Pepperdine team at uh, LACC. I, I was chatting with one of your uh, former teammates, um, just getting ready for this, and he 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 wanted to know how much different the college golf uh, landscape has changed since your time at Pepperdine. <sighs> Maybe the courses they these guys play. I mean, yeah, the programs now are just. I feel like I don't know. They're just so much better. Like the the places they get to play. I mean, these guys are flying private jets a few weeks a year like it's not we're not even the same ballpark clothes that they get to wear i mean we had some of the nastiest pleated pants and just it's a whole new level like they're playing la once a month and they get to play they're like members out of sherwood and then they get bel-air they get i mean the places they get they get to go are just it's unbelievable and the trips they get to make and obviously the coach at pepperdine is, is doing a great job michael beard i mean they i mean he's he's one of the best coaches in the country for sure so they're lucky to have him but yeah it's it's different it's different especially now with the nil stuff and all that it's man it's wild yeah i saw one of the guys because i was out there i was shooting and i saw one of the guys like you know he's obviously uh, william mao he's a big time player you know one of the best players in the country he's wearing a ping hat like all you know it's like oh he's got a deal like yeah. you know it's it's uh i think it's good obviously for i I, like long you know when you think about the ncaa obviously nil i think is uh is a long it was a long time coming yeah one of the things that i heard from your teammate was that uh you you take weeks off golf what do you like to do in your downtime yeah i mean i don't take a a ton of time off just because there's so many tournaments on the pga tour i mean i played all but one in the fall schedule so it's more like i'm not i'm not someone that grinds on off weeks i'll play like twice a week but I like, I mean, I like anything outdoors. I'm wake surfing, surfing mountain. I got, I've got a mountain bike that I, one of those electric ones. It's kind of fun to take out motorcycling. I mean, I do kind of everything. I live somewhere where a lot of people are mountain biking all the time, like crazy amounts. And I was wondering, like, is the e-bike like cheating? A hundred percent. It's yeah. But it's like your get out of jail free card. Cause like, if you, if you end up going too far and you're like, oh man, I like I don't want to get back. Like you just flip that thing on and you just power through it. So for me, it's like, I'm going just kind of explore and just get out. If you're like a, a purist, you know, like my old caddy's like all into mountain biking and he would, I feel like he would never do one of those. Cause it's, you know, he looks down on that, <laughs> but if you're just out there like for fun, I mean, it's, it's amazing way to get around. Now for a quick word from our sponsor, Athletic Greens. I take AG1 every day. This has been a big deal for me in the last uh, few months. I started taking it last fall, and I was looking to just get, I think, you know, the last couple of years had taken their toll on me. I, I had been traveling a lot. I hadn't been living that healthy of a lifestyle. And I think one of the big things for me is just getting my daily nutrients that I need on a daily basis and getting in the habit of getting them in me quick. Um, has been a big help to me. I'm I'm travel a ton. I'm on the go a lot, and I can't always be healthy every single day. So getting a good start to the day by taking AG1 right in the morning and having that routine has really helped me in the last you know 
few months get to a better place physically and mentally. You know, it's a comprehensive health and the power of habit in one. And I just like, I've noticed, I just feel better. I'm My digestion's better. I, I don't feel as bloated as often. And, you know, it really empowers the gut and the whole body for whole body health. So, you know, this is the thing I've, I've been working out more because of the habit aspect of it. And, you know, it's so much more than just like a, a greens powder. So the way it works is you put this powder, you mix it up with water, you get a nice dose of water and a nice dose of nutrients right at the start of the day. I take it first thing in the morning and it really sets me up for the rest of the day. So if a comprehensive solution is what you need from your supplement routine, then Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first first purchase. And to do this, you go to athleticgreens.com slash thefrydike. That's athleticgreens.com slash thefrydike. Check it out. You get the vitamin D as well as the five free travel packs, which are awesome. I love them for when I travel like I did last week in LA. I didn't miss my Athletic Greens, my AG1 while I was away. So check them out, athleticgreens.com slash thefrydike. And now back to Andrew Putnam. What do you think of the new tour schedule? I think obviously with um, everything that's gone on with live elevated events, we've heard a ton from top tier players like, you know, Rory's really stepped up, obviously, as as one of the big voices on tour. But the interesting thing is like how this changes tour life for players of your ilk, like right in the middle, like, you know, it's, you know, mid-level players. I hope I'm not, you know, denigrating your career, but, um, you know, how do you think the new schedule, what do you like about it? What are some of the drawbacks of it for a player that's kind of, you know, you're in elevated events, you're playing the second elevated event in as many weeks here. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I've yet to see what, what the falls like actually going to look like, but this, the, this year in general is the same as it always has been really. I mean, not, not much has changed other than those elevated events, which I already play anyway. So it's not changing a whole lot. But once the fall rolls around, that's kind of where I'm I'm curious to see how it all shakes up, you know. That's where all the changes kind of are coming and I don't even know if they know what the fall looks like. What would you like to see the fall look like? I'd like to have a break. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, we never really get that much time off. So like having a few months off would be would be great. But I think that's what they're planning on, but I'm just I, I don't know. It's hard to know. As somebody who covers the sport, I'd like to break a little bit too. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, an off season wouldn't be the worst you've played in a handful of majors now what's the biggest difference for you when you go from a regular tour stop to a major uh i would say just like the vibe and the energy and the atmosphere just on another level i mean i think it's way more fun like it just i played all, i i was actually in all the majors that covid year it was kind of unfortunate <laughs> i was exempt through all of them and man it was such a bummer it was just was like this is not that enjoyable being on the courses in these majors with no fans and so um, obviously the setups are tougher and it's more penal and you got to be on kind of every aspect of your game is basically challenged but um just the crowd and the atmosphere is just the best i mean it's just you can't beat it it's kind of like phoenix open you know it's like that every, for the majors just mm-hmm. so much energy and, and it's just so fun did that phoenix open feel different as an elevated event than like the year before no, not really. I mean, it obviously with with the better players, like all all the better players being there, that makes a little difference. But the atmosphere was 
just as wild as it's ever been. That's I'm interested. Obviously, like this week is an event that always has a great field. So it's not yeah. that much different. And it's like when we get more into the schedule, maybe it's Wells Fargo. Yeah. When you have like your probably your first elevated event that do, isn't used to having, you know, 15 of the top 20 players in the world or 10 of the top 20 players in the world, if it'll feel any different. But I think the idea like how are you going about building your schedule now with these events is it, is it different like are there stops that you like to play because they fit your game that you're having to work in and maybe it is creating like a you know a lot of events in a row yeah i think the wells fargo is the one that like i kind of has been iffy on my schedule but i'll probably end up playing it this year because it's an elevated but all the other ones i mean they're all events that I've always loved to play. So it's not changing a whole lot. Um, but that middle part of the season, yeah, it's going to be strange. What I mean, I'm still, I'm in that spot where I'm like, I'm not in the Masters. I'm kind of on the edge with the match play. So there's a lot of like moving pieces that I'm like, I just, I don't know where I'll be playing and not. I'm, you know, living in up in Washington. It's like flying all the way to Hilton Head. And then do I fly home after that? Or I play, you know, Louisiana. I don't know. There's just, it's a, tough like middle stretch for me so we'll see how that shakes out but i still have no idea what i'm gonna do it's just especially with the family and stuff i, I don't know how that's gonna work yeah that i mean imagine that makes things a lot different i, I mean i travel a ton and yeah. and being on a coast makes it a little bit tougher to get out because yep. it's like do i take a red eye or do i just give a full day to travel but then obviously with the family is there a cadence that you like to keep a certain amount of weeks out a certain amount of weeks home I mean, I think not being gone for more than like two weeks from the family, either they're, them coming to see me or me seeing them is probably kind of a good rhythm for us. But there's no like set in stone. We got to do this or that. It just seems like if I'm gone more than two weeks, my kids might start forgetting about me. <laughs> That's just a, a preference. But yeah. What like a week where your kids aren't or in family aren't around? Yeah. What are you doing with your downtime versus like obviously when they're around? I don't think we have to talk about like what you're doing stuff with them. Obviously. Yeah. What are you doing weeks that they aren't around? I'm doing stuff like this, like getting to you know hang out and <laughs> being on a podcast. Like I got to play, you know, with Pepperdine team yesterday. Go out to dinner with a couple friends. Yeah, and a lot of you know trying to sleep in, read and trying to get out and like do like a couple hour hike by myself like alone each week you know without the phone and stuff i think that's kind of important um so yeah i mean get to catch up on business stuff i'm doing and just other stuff it's yeah it's, it's quite a stark contrast between the weeks that my kids on the road and, and not it's kind of it's kind of hard honestly it's a weird adjustment because you go from like 24 7 to what do i do with all this time it's it's it is it's almost it's like a little hard. Yeah. You know, I honestly, you know, last night or so we traveled down here without our daughter and this is going to be the longest that we've been away from her. Uh, and my wife went out with friends last night and I like it was like six o'clock and I was like, wait, what? Yeah. What am I? What am I doing what tonight? Doing? <laughs> like, like, I'm just going to get a sit <laughs> yeah. by myself. Like, it's and very it's, weird. The the hike without a phone. Yeah. You know, I think like this is. One of the things I'd notice is like a lot of times when I go out and do something, I put headphones in, I listen to music or I run or I listen to podcasts and like you don't have the same thought process. Like it's almost like sometimes you feel like it's empty calories. Yeah. I shouldn't be saying this as a podcast host. But then when you go without it, like it's amazing where your mind takes you. 
if you go yeah. on without anything like what are the things that you're thinking about when you're when you're doing that if you don't mind sharing yeah i feel like you, you just give your like mind time to breathe and like recalibrate like you just I try to not do it and have like an intention where I'm like, I need to figure these things out. It's like, okay, I just let my mind go. Like there's all these things I think in your subconscious that like you can kind of suppress with, you know, just information in and shows and just the nonstop digital life. Right. And so I think allowing, giving yourself that room to just like let your mind like figure out the stuff it, it's been putting on the back burner is really important. Like, Hey, I need to process this conversation I had with my wife where we're, you know, got an argument or like what happened? Like, how should I raise my kids, kids in this situation? Like just these random thoughts that I'm not trying to like force that just kind of pop in and you're like, wow, I'm actually able to work through some things that I'm probably not thinking through that need to get figured out that I haven't given myself the time to do, you know? So like, it's, it's a very powerful, powerful, like practice to just get away. And I don't do it enough, but it's so important. Have you ever had any golf epiphanies doing this? Yeah, I've had, yeah, like just random things I've thought through and like, yeah, I need to change this or think through this or nothing that's been like probably groundbreaking recently. It's more just personal life stuff that I'm yeah. trying to work through. Uh, you don't have a swing coach, right? A regular swing coach? Yeah, haven't, I haven't really had one since uh, Mark Blackburn in probably, was that 2014 or 15? been kind of solo since for about six years now six seven years what are what do you feel like the advantages of that are i mean for me it was just uh i think with i mean mark's an incredible teacher right like i credit him like getting me to the tour like i, I was kind of in a bad spot on the corn ferry and ended up meeting him and this guy jason glass who a great trainer and did a lot of good work together. And I'd see him like being on the corn fair, you know, I'd see him like once every couple months. Right. And then give me a few things to work on is great. Worked on him and, and then uh, see him again a couple months. And I think that like that rhythm was really good for me. And then I got to the tour and I think just, there's just more access to information and coaches and, you know, Mark was, Mark travels a lot. So he's out there a lot. And it's hard. Like when you have a coach there, it's like, how do I not see my coach and get instruction or get feedback? And I was going through some struggles with some equipment stuff too. So it was like this combination of things. And sometimes you just like, you just get too far off where you just kind of forget like what got you there and you forget your feels. And so I think the advantage is like, man, you become very attuned with like, you have to have ownership over your game, first of all. And you have to be, become like, I've always been a pretty feel-oriented player, so I think it really forces you to engage with that. Like, if I get off, I kind of have to have my checklist of this, these are the things I know that gets me back on. So that's the advantage. Like, if I'm in competition and I'm playing and I get off, I kind of know what, what I need to correct. But if you are too reliant upon a coach, you can have a problem where you're like, man, I need to finish this round and I need to send my coach these videos and get this figured out. Like, I don't know what's going on. And so there's advantages to both, I would say. I mean, the ideal case is probably having a, a coach you're checking in with, like having a second eye. And I still have that. I still, I mean, I'd, I'd seen, like I went and saw Butch Harmon. I've sent videos to David Ledbetter. Like I've seen a lot of coaches throughout the these six years that I haven't had a full coach, but I just haven't, I think for me, it worked best with just, uh, you know, a little bit of instruction and then me kind of formulating it around my own feels and taking ownership versus the constant like input that some players need and everyone's different you know everyone everyone excels differently and that i figured that i figured out that was my the best case scenario for me and i think like the last couple of years i haven't really had much coaching at all so i don't know 
I think that, like you hit on something that's extremely powerful. It's like the idea of like your coach being almost like a crutch. And when you take that away, it forces you to be And obviously I think like there's a lot of different ways to approach this golf. Like you can approach things a million different ways. Yeah. But when something goes wrong and you get when you see somebody regularly, your first inclination is like, okay, I need to ask what's wrong because they're there to help. It's almost like yeah. if you're home with your kids and your wife is around, it's like you you say, hey, can you come help? Versus if you're home alone, it's like, okay, I got to figure this out, right? And I think that's like an interesting thing with golf is like, you know, it's such an individual game. The more individual you can be with with your golf swing and technique is probably a pretty powerful thing. And then using coaches like you have as almost consultants where you can take or leave whatever they're saying. Yeah. How have you noticed with seeing different guys and some of the best teachers in the world? Do you see different styles in the way they approach things? Has there been things like with the way they communicate something? Are they giving consistent feedback? Is it like, do most people point to this to similar things with you when you're seeing these different coaches? For the most part, yeah. I mean, they like kind of see the same. It's like they see the same. Hey, I'm having a problem with this. Like how you know? And they they pretty much all have the same consensus view like these guys are smart mark's smart like but charman's smart ledbetter's like all you know some of the other guys you know i have friends who are good swing coaches they're smart like they see the exact same thing it's like it's not rocket science like what my i get a little steep my hips kind of go left i don't know there's just like things that i always do right it's like get a little narrow you know get narrow and it's like yeah hands and body club get away from me going back and so there's like these patterns that like everyone points to is the same thing but you know, the, the the differences in coaching is just like how they communicate it to you, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's the biggest thing. Like, I think Butch Harmon's like the kind of guy that's like a great coach. Like, he he pumps you up and makes you feel like you're going to be a world beater, you know? Same with Ledbetter. Like, he's great, like, interpersonally. And I felt like he wasn't very technical at all. Like, he, I know he got, he gets that rap, but he wasn't. He's like, man, if you're just within this range, like, you'll be perfect. So, I think the best the best golf swing instructors are the best coaches too. Like they know how to get you feeling confident about what they're talking about, but they all see the same stuff. You know, they're all smart. It's not like they've been doing it long enough. They can point out the flaws pretty quickly in the matchups, you know? Yeah. And so it's just more the, the delivery style and communication that, you know, you might hear something from one person and someone says it just like a tiny bit different and it makes sense with your brain. And sometimes that's, that's all you need. That's why I always say to people is like, if somebody just communicates the the feel that connects with your brain, that's like all, because they could be saying the exact same thing, but it's so hard to deliver like telling somebody how to move their body while you're doing a golf swing that you've done a million times. And that's the problem with like relying, like so, I see some players that are like, they get so lost and they're like, and they, they're blaming their coach for what they're doing. And it's like, dude, you're dealing with, unless you're making these huge changes, like you're dealing with the smallest little things that like the coach can't feel that. He can't feel what you're feeling. So like him tell, giving you advice, like why are you asking him? You're, it's like a crutch. You want someone to blame, right? Instead of digging deep and being like, no, I got to figure this out because these are these little like, maybe it's a little timing thing or it's a little feeling of how the club goes back the first foot. Like these little tiny things are, that's what makes, like how can you go from hitting a perfect shot one swing and then hitting a bad shot the next? Like if you film it on, on camera like these golf announcers on tv are ridiculous obviously they need to like have content and make say stuff but like to be able to see like oh yeah he got kind of underneath that or i'm like dude you cannot tell what's going on on a camera 
TrackMan can pick it up and show the club path, but visually you can't see it. So how would a swing coach know those little micro adjustments? Like, man, just own up to it and don't put it on your coach to be the crutch for you. Like that's the problem, you know? And so many times like with that, it's just little things. Like if you don't feel as comfortable over the shot, like that's how, like I notice. like if I don't feel comfortable, that's when I might get under and block one. That's the thing with golf. It's so it can be so complicated, but it's like you can, from what I've tried to do is like, man, there's some weeks that I'm playing really well. The next week I don't. And it could be like, I don't know. It could be the grass that I'm playing on. It could be the way I'm seeing like the shadows and the dude, there's so many weird things that could be influencing like how you're playing that I've come to like accept and realize. And I think it helps you just like get over some bad golf or bad swings or, you know, like putting, you could just not be seeing the reads that well in the greens because the greens are different than the week before. And it's like, well, if I make this big overarching statement of I need to change everything, well, maybe it's just a little visual something that changed, you know, and you don't get on these extremes that people can get on especially pro golfers like we're perfectionists it's very hard but there's a lot of like there's a lot of nuance to playing well you're you're a really good putter um obviously i mean everybody one of the things i tell people is like everybody on tour is a really good putter yeah like if you take like the worst putter on tour and put them in like a, a club game <laughs> yeah. they'd be the best putter out there yes. but I'm, I'm curious about how you approach go about approaching putting like what's your general thought are you very detail oriented you talked about earlier being a field player are you what are you thinking about do you think about do you just try and not think about anything how does how do you like kind of approach your work on the greens yeah so i mean in terms of putting like i kind of do the same drills i've always done for the last 20 years honestly i kind of i have like a mirror and a a ruler i put off and then i use a string line i do a lot of one-handed putting right hand left hand and i kind of do the same stuff every day like put a string line have a left to right breaker and do one-handed putting with my right hand, one-handed putting with my left hand, right side, same thing. I, I'm not I'm not a very wristy putter. I'm a lot of shoulders. And so I keep that very simple. I haven't changed my putter really. I've had kind of a similar putter for the last 20 years. I mean, I think that's important. Like people who struggle with putting, you see they just go through putters all the time. Like my brother was never a great putter. And you'd have a different putter, different grip. Sometimes mid-round, like just different, you know, it's like, that's just the tell, 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 tell sign of that guy's struggling with his putting. He's switching all the time, right? Yeah. It's hard to just be consistent like that. So keep everything pretty consistent. And then I've always like, I've always read putts with my feet. It's weird. I've always kind of gone to where like the, the last like four or five feet are and kind of shuffled my feet in. And it's just funny to see now that with aim point, that's how everyone does it. But I've always done that. So it's just kind of been how I've, that's how I've read putts. Do you think about speed? If I do, that's not a good sign. So I'm trying, because people ask me like, what do you, you know, I have all, I have friends who like <laughs> are pretty good golfers and they're always asking me like, what do you think about when you're putting on this and that? Like, do you, are you looking at the ball? Are you seeing the back? I'm like, no, if you're thinking of speed or thinking of where your eyes looking or it's just not good. Like I don't, I try not to have any thoughts, honestly. Once I start thinking, it's not good. That's, I tell people this all the time and they think I'm like crazy. Yeah. But like, I believe if I like walk around a putt that I've hit enough putts in my life that I don't have to even contemplate how hard to hit the putt. And I compare it to like basketball. If you're coming across half court, you're not thinking about how far away from the hoop you are when you're shooting, right? You're just shooting the ball. Yeah, just reacting. And, And that's the thing is like with putting, I feel like 
getting into that reaction where you're not thinking about anything, it becomes more reactionary, which is like, I think the hardest thing about golf is like, all, it's like pitching or shooting a free throw or kicking a field goal as we've seen guys struggle with, <laughs> you yeah. know, like uh, Brett Maher, like, you know, like he just became, you know, but when you have time to think about it, that's when you can get yourself in trouble and it's where you're not thinking about stuff can help you. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you got guys like, I'm I'm friends with Aaron Badley and like if you heard his putting routine you'd just be like this guy's nuts. He doesn't I've asked him he doesn't even know where he's aiming. Doesn't know where he's aiming and I don't even know if he does any practice putts. He says I just look I just get up to the ball. He's one of the best putters ever. Ever. I'm like you seriously don't know where you're aiming. No. Just get up there and I just I see it and I hit it. And that I mean that's like the total extreme but it shows you like man the guy's been great forever. Yeah. Yeah. To me, it's like I used to be a really I used to struggle with putting. And when I stopped thinking about everything, I became like a a way better. It's funny. Now I can't hit the ball for anything because (laughs) I don't practice. But like it's it's weird how the game shifted, but it was all a mentality shift. And it was like just picking out spots and hitting a putt to a spot and not thinking about the speed. Like it's almost the worst thing that can. But then everybody's different. Then you see guys with the line that are really great putters that everything. Yeah, I still, I, and I use that, use the line, all that stuff. And yeah, I mean, I think practicing your speed is good, but once you're in like tournament mode, like you shouldn't be, if you're thinking speed, that's just not a bad, that's not a good spot. You kind of just need to let it flow. You brought up your brother. He was a great player. He play, played on the PGA Tour, uh, one, I think three web events. Yeah. That was back when the web was the web. What was uh, the advantage of being the younger brother? Law well, had a lot of advantages. I mean, coming out like getting recruited by colleges, like they obviously knew my name just because my brother. So that was a huge advantage. And I mean, playing with a guy who was—I mean, he—he he was probably one of the best, if not the best, am player coming out his year. You know, he was on the Walker Cup team. He was like probably the best player on the Walker Cup. He had and he had Anthony Kim, JB. Like he had all those guys on his team. So being able to play and practice and kind of chase after him was a huge advantage, like learning through his footsteps. And he kind of was the trailblazer for me. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's always easier the second time around, I feel like. His, his game's like a lot different than yours too, right? Like usually- Pretty you much think, polar like, opposites, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I imagine, I remember, you know, I had a buddy who was a really good high school player um, and he had older brothers who played on the team. And yeah. he he was like, when he was a little kid, he was he was scrappy. He would, you know, get up and down everywhere. And it would drive his brothers insane. Like, were there moments? I imagine that you guys had some matches that get, got pretty chippy. And you being a little bit different type player probably riled him up. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, <laughs> it's always frustrating when you're hitting the ball better than someone and someone else is beating you. Like, match play or anything. It's just, that's the worst. I had a lot of teammates who are, still have bitter feelings towards me for some of that stuff. Um, so, because he, I mean, Michael is one of the best ball strikers like in the game. And uh, his putting was good at times, you know, at times it wasn't as good. But yeah, it's when you're hitting it to five feet and you're, and you're, the guy's making 20 footer and you're missing your five footer, there's nothing more frustrating. When you look at your game and where it's at, what are you doing? Like, what are you looking at to try and get your, to the next level like get where you're locked in every major every year type level yeah i mean i think the like the consistency i've had the last couple years has been pretty good i've had like brief stretches of a couple months where i just didn't quite play well and it kind of kept me out from getting out getting into like the top 30 i think at the end of the year so i've been doing a lot of great i mean 
my body's been feeling really great over the last two years. I kind of had a back issue like three years ago that kind of was tough for about six, seven months. So being healthy is like number one priority for me in this stage of life and keeping my swing speed kind of at least where it's at, not declining. is kind of a, it's a big goal. And, uh, I, yeah, I'm just in that spot where I feel like I'm, I'm a lot more comfortable, like in positions being in final groups and all that stuff. So it's just kind of learning through that process of how, how to like, I feel like, especially the last like four or five months, I've, I've been in the final group probably four or five times, maybe less, I don't know, three or four times, maybe going to Sunday or Saturday and just haven't quite played as well as I had the previous few days and just kind of got my own way and, and just playing a little too conservatively. So I think just being able to learn from those and being freed up to, man, when you're the guys who win, typically, man, they're playing the same way Sunday as they did on like a, a Friday. Unless it's like a major where you have to be a little more conservative, but just kind of keeping the, you know, pedal on the metal, um, something I'm still trying to learn. You know, there's certain guys that I feel like they get in the hunt and they're just like killers, like Max Homa. Like he's always been that guy, you know, where it's like he gets toward a lead and he just like, it's, a, it's like a fuel that just accelerates. And like a guy like Nick Taylor, even like, you know, he gets around the lead and uh, he's, you know, obviously like great amateur. He won a million times and and he has that instinct, and I'm I'm trying to still learn that instinct. I've been very consistent, but I think having that instinct of like how to get you know pushing through and winning is something I'm trying to learn. It's a weird thing about golf, where I think like most people, I don't think like what you're talking about with Taylor and Homa is is a natural thing or a normal thing. I think that's like kind of a uh where you get that mentality. Like it's it's something I'm like fascinated about with golf is like how you immediately you have success and then it's like i need to protect this versus just doing what you're doing i had a i had a round last year i don't have many good rounds anymore it's like few and far between but i got it going and i was like through 12 holes and i'm like i haven't made a bogey yet i haven't had a clean card in forever and i start and then sure enough like i'm thinking about the clean card and it's like the rest of the way in it's like a grind of up and downs to keep that because that's what became my my thought yeah. versus like just doing what i did the first 12 holes you know yeah. well yeah it's like the simple psychology thing it's like loss aversion right when you feel like you have something you don't want to lose it which is bizarre because it's like even like if you know you're in a casino and you're getting hot most times people are trying to back down their bets like no that's when you need to press that's like you're you're on a heater like you need to press it's that weird protective mechanism we have in our it's like a normal human trait that yeah it's like we're we don't want to lose what we've had, but that's so scary in golf because it's like, dude, you don't have anything until the tournament's over. So you that's just a terrible mindset to be in. And and especially on the PGA Tour, like I've had to literally try to trick my mind because I'm like, at the end of a tournament on a Sunday, like if I make a bogey and I say I'm in like the top 15 where the strokes really count, if I make a bogey, it might cost me $40,000 just looking at it money-wise. But if I make a birdie, it's going to, I'm going to make $120,000. So it's like, do you not realize that going for birdies, like the upside is so much higher than the downside risk? Like, it's weird how you, you don't naturally think that way, but it's like, that's the reality. And so sometimes he's got to be like, dude, get over trying to, you know, not make mistakes and go for it, you know? Because that's how, that's, I mean, all the top guys, it's their mindset. Do you have like a, a sequence of a, like a an event, like a small sequence that you like think about a lot, like where something went completely one way, but like since then it was a really valuable learning experience. Um, I feel like I've had a ton of those like 
just in small doses. But I think there's like a framework of thinking that I try to go back to. It's like this, um, this thing called like fear setting. I don't know. It's kind of a random thing, but like as golfers, like you have a fear of failing, right? Like this is a constant thing, like missing a cut or not playing well in a big event or whatever. And sometimes like that fear of, of playing bad or something like can overwhelm your ability. You know, it kind of distracts you from doing the things you got to do to play well. But like, I try to go back and think about all the times I have missed the cut or I have failed in the big moments and all that stuff and go like work your way through the outcome of like, what was the, what was the worst outcome of that or how, you know, and you think back and you're like, oh, it was just a tournament. I hardly even remember those times I failed. It really doesn't matter. But like in your mind, you can make these moments become like so big. And it's like, dude, it's just another tournament. It's not going to change your career, your life. And so to like, to do kind of this, that fear setting thing, I think it's like a Tim Ferriss thing that he talks about like doing, like just play out, like what's the worst case scenario with this happening. And then after you know that it's like, oh, it's not that bad, you know, and I can get through it and I can take on risk and I can fail. And it's, Hey, I've had enough tournaments now where I've like, I've had failures and I've had successes. So I kind of know like, Hey, they're both it's fine. I mean, one of the things that you lose if the, if you go to off season is the idea of like, hey, you know, there's a tournament next week. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Exactly. Um, what are your What are your five say five favorite stops on tour? I mean, this week's probably the best course on tour. I'd say hands down. I mean, there's what maybe one hazard one hazard on the golf course, and it's literally just right in front of you. It's just as good as it gets. I'd say here Memorial is probably one of the best on tour. Um, and then, I mean, Charles Schwab for me, I just love that course. It fits me really well. And, um, I mean, these are not counting the majors, obviously. Yeah, the majors yeah. are, are obviously, number, you know, the top. And then, uh, whew, after that, I don't know. Yeah. Those are kind of my top three. Um, That's fine. I didn't have a number <laughs> in mind. I, I, threw I got a solid out. top three for sure. And then, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of great tournaments that treat you really well. And courses are, I mean, Travelers is a really fun event. I love that course. And, but it's not like an elite course. It's a fun course. Do you have, uh, do you set goals? Or are you a goal setter? Do you have any goals for the, uh, you know, your career? And No, I, I'm very anti-goals. I tried doing that and it just was disappointing. So <laughs> I just, I never, I don't know. I've just never liked goals. Like it's just one of those things in golf is like, the quickest way to disappointments is having high expectations or like setting goals like in life in general like the secret to happiness is low expectations right so i'm more like man if i do just the day-to-day -day things right if i'm taking care of my body if i'm taking care of my you know my mental i guess like my off the course stuff having a good relationship with my wife my kid like all these little things that like build on day day to day that like if i take care of those little things like the results are going to be they're going to be good, you know? And so I don't need to worry about trying to achieve certain things. That's just never been my, my thing. Awesome. I, I appreciate the time. Uh, you got a golf tournament, you got to go do some practice rounds and stuff. Uh, but I appreciate the time. Everybody can find you on social media and, uh, hopefully yep. you'll have some, uh, some new fans. We'll go figure out what, what Andrew Putnam fans would be called. You know, is there a name? I don't know. My, <laughs> my wife likes team Putnam. That's kind of our, Go to line, but it might be too close to Team Reed, you know. <laughs> yeah, no, <that's laughs> true. drop that. <laughs> that's not good. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thanks, Andrew. Cool, thanks, Andy.
Thank you for listening to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. And thank you to Matt Ruches for the edit. Thank you, Matt. As a quick reminder, uh, if you have not checked it out, uh, Club TFE is humming. This last week, we posted a bunch of stuff on George Thomas and, and different intricacies. Garrett's been writing a ton in Club TFE. We've been uh, getting a lot of great feedback about our weekly course write-ups as well as the other content and this week we have uh the second version of our virtual hangout so it's basically like a QA, kind of almost like a QA podcast we're kicking that off this week if you're interested in club tfe it's 120 dollars for the year and uh that you can find out more about it at thefriedegg.com slash membership thanks and uh we will be back later this week with another edition of the podcast Thank you.